you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. And uh, as you're turning there, let me just say I feel very blessed to be here this morning. Uh, very fortunate uh, to be a part of God's work at the vine. Very fortunate to be able to come and proclaim the excellencies of my God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm extremely excited this morning to preach the gospel. May we never get over the gospel that Jesus came. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died a, a cruel death on the cross, our death. And that he gave his life, but it didn't end there. He rose again from the grave. And one day, he's coming again. Amen? It's the gospel. It's good to preach the gospel. And this morning, I'm even more excited. I've been waiting for this moment for all my life. This morning, by the end of this message, you will be able to know when the return of Christ is. That's right. This morning in your hearing, right here today, I'm going to tell you when Christ shall return. Are you excited? Man, get ready. Go to, go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring you up, or stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should return, or you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your, your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through the water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing or willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Let's just walk through this passage together and see what God will teach us this morning. He, he begins this, uh, this part as he says, Peter uh, is writing to the beloved. This is my second letter writing to you, beloved. It's, it's important that he calls them beloved. He loved these people, right? He hasn't mentioned this since chapter 1. And then throughout the rest of the book, he's going to mention it three or four more times. He just got through warning them about false prophets that would come, false teachers telling them of the soon destruction of these false teachers, and now he gets back to his, his very personal, very intimate relationship with them, with his readers, and he says, I'm stirring you up, uh, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He's, he's waking them up. We've seen this before, this idea of stirring them up. It's this idea of, of waking up, of getting people's attention, stirring them up from their complacency. It's easy to do that, isn't it? It's easy to get complacent in your life. Maybe you, maybe you exercise often. 
or maybe you start exercising for a period of time often and you become complacent and you anyway moving on right we it's easy to get complacent in things well the same thing's true in our christian walk and he's stirring them up he's waking them up by way of reminder they know what they ought to do they know the things of god he's taught taught them this before but he's reminding them they've seen the holy prophets they've seen other teachings of the apostles and now he's reminding them he's stirring them up what is he stirring them up of well this particular moment he's stirring them up with this Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Hallelujah. Jesus is going to return. He's coming back. Praise be to God. We are assured of his return. Our king will return. This time not as a suffering servant, but as a reigning and ruling king. King Jesus is coming back. And somebody said, amen. Amen. That's good preaching. He's coming back. He's coming back. Do you long for his return? Do you you pray frequently as John did in the second to last verse of the Bible in response to Jesus saying, Jesus said, I'm coming soon. John said, amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Do you long for the return of Christ? Just as sure as we are sitting here, folks, Jesus is coming back. Imagine with me for a minute the people waiting for the first coming of the Messiah. The Jewish people waiting this they're in bondage. They're in slavery to all these different nations, and they, they want help. And they, they think they need help from the governing authorities around them, but what they really needed is the same thing we need, and that's deliverance from sin. And so they waited for this long-coming Messiah. What anticipation they must have had for His coming. And we too long for His coming, not as the suffering servant, but as the reigning King, who will bring in a reign of righteousness. And this dominion of darkness that we now live in, will be gone away. We see that destruction in this passage. Did I tell you yet that Jesus is coming back? He's coming. Who cares about what else may come in this life? Jesus will return. Well, how do we know? How do we know he's going to return? Let's look at our text. Verse 2. He says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. In our text, we see that we have a source of truth. And we've already talked about this a couple weeks ago. We have the Holy Scriptures. And here we see it broken up into a, a couple different categories. First, the predictions of the Holy Prophets. He returns to this topic he introduced back in one, uh, chapter 1, 19 through 21, where he urged his readers to pay attention to the prophetic word as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And that shining lamp had been illuminated by the Holy Spirit who moved the writers of Scripture to compose without error God's infallible, inspired word that we have today. And so he's reminding them about what the prophets said. So let's just take a journey back into a couple prophets. Let's look at Isaiah for a minute. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. Isaiah 66, chapter 15, uh, verse 15 and 16. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like whirlwind to render his anger and fury. And his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment. And by his sword will all, with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. We see this, this idea of the end times. Of, of when Christ shall return and judgment will come. Judgment will come. And so we see that in the prophets. We also see it from Isaiah all the way to Malachi. Malachi chapter 4. Behold the day is coming. Burning like an oven. When all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. I like that illustration. I'm a country boy. You ever tie up a calf? 
keep him pinned up? When you let him out, yeah, no, right? We have, Joe. Yeah. When you let a calf out of a stall, he's excited. He's running around, leaping and jumping. When you see that bulls on TV, that's because they shocked them and they're angry. These are little calves that are excited, right? Not, not bulls that are angry, but we're going to leap like that because the righteousness of Christ is going to be so clear to us. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So from Isaiah to Malachi, from the beginning of the prophets to the Old Testament to the end, we see the theme of God's final wrath, often called the day of the Lord. Folks, he's coming. Have I told you yet that he's coming? And while we look to it as this exciting time where his righteousness is fulfilled, it's also going to be a time of judgment. A judgment for the unbelievers. Judgment for these false teachers he just talked about. It's going to be one well of a day when he returns and all these things come to pass that he's talking about. The second category we see is not just what the prophets predicted, but the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. You see that in verse 2. Remember, Jesus had spoken to the apostles directly and that many of those that were listening probably to these letters had maybe even heard the words of Jesus. It was still in the time period where their lives could have been there. The context of this passage, though, is the return of Christ. Jesus often talked about his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his return. In Matthew chapter 24, we see a lot about the end times. In in Luke chapter 21, we see this idea that Christ will come again. He talks about the return of of him the day of the lord in john 14 he tells his disciples in a very intimate setting you've uh i'm going to prepare a place for you and that where i go you may also be uh, and i will take you unto myself and so he's talking about his return and the apostles of whom peter had already spoken of having authority to speak they speak often of christ's return so we see in the in the prophets we see in the gospels matthew mark luke john we see also in the writings of the apostles paul mentions christ's return Here's a fun fact. 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament explicitly refer to the Lord's return. Two of the four that don't explicitly refer to it allude to it. So there are only two books that don't mention it. So children, I've got a little challenge for you. If you come back to me with the two books that don't mention the return of Christ in them, you might get a little reward. Just say All right. So in the 260 chapters of the New Testament, there are about 300 instances in which Christ's apostles make reference to his second coming. Folks, he's coming. He's coming. The prophets spoke about it. Jesus spoke about it. The apostles have spoke about it. Christ is returning. Does it matter to you? This means yes. It does. He's coming. That's exciting. doesn't matter to everybody. Some will scoff. We see that in our text. How do believers feel about his coming. How do believers feel? And I put that word feel in there uh, because I think that's important. Most of them are, are, are basing the facts on their feelings. They don't feel like he's coming, so they don't really care, right? There's real no convic- really no conviction. But look at chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all the things continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, Peter has already told them about false teachers. He's already told them about these people who will be destroyed because they teach falsely. They're they're spiritual pretenders. They claim the name of Christ, but they're really not Christians. Those are those who reject the faith. Uh, and, And here are some who reject the faith by mocking or scoffing. These are people who tease and poke fun at the claims of Christ. 
Chapter 2, we see the false brethren who claim to be believers but were not. These described in chapter 3 are cynical scoffers who make fun of the faith from the outside. Now, sometimes those categories overlap, but much of the time they are two distinct forces to be reckoned with. We deal with people that say they're Christians who really aren't. We deal with people who say they're Christians who teach false doctrine. And then in our life, we will encounter people who will make fun of us for our Christian beliefs. It's going to happen. It's part of life. And Peter is, 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 is covering all this. You're going to face persecution. They're already scattered here. And so now we see that there will be different types of people who persecute his church. They say things like verse 4. Look at verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all, these, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. So the challenge, the, the scoffing and ridicule and mockery, was that in all things, that all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing had changed. Their point is, you keep talking about this coming of Christ, but nothing has changed. There's, there's, there's no big deal. You keep talking about all these things that don't come to pass. You're talking about future events that aren't going to happen. As I was preparing for this message, I googled a couple things about Christ's return just to see what people out there were saying. The articles out there of people making fun of the return of Christ are innumerable. Just Google it. So they challenge it. It was as if the Messiah had never come in the first place. And Peter says when scoffers talk about such things, they willfully forget something. They willfully forget. Look at verses 5 through 7. What do they forget? They deliberately overlook or forget this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through the water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. They don't believe that Jesus will return because they don't believe the words of the prophets and apostles. They don't believe in creation. They don't believe any of the things that we teach. It's, it's not simply the words of the, apostles, of the apostles that scoffers will forget, but the power of God over creation. They don't even recognize that God created things. And of course they will question the details of our faith that Christ will return because they question the very beginning of our faith, the very initiation of the world that God spoke and the world came to be. You see, pagan people... They despise intelligent design probably more than any concept because it challenges their autonomy. They want to be self-governing. They want to be the rulers of their own world. And so creation is not a fun thing to talk about. They cannot bear the idea that the world and everything in it were brought into being not just by some vague, amorphous, intelligent design, but by the eternal, immutable God himself. And how did he do that? I love this. How did God create the world? By his word. By his word, he brought the universe into being. And that's what Peter's talking about here. He brought the universe into being by his word. God said, let there be, and there was. It's a divine imperative. God is the only being who has the ability to bring something out of nothing by the sheer power of his command. He spoke, and it came to be. God said, let there be light. There's light. I love the psalmist. He says God he breathed the stars into existence. So can you imagine with me God just going, star, and stars coming out into existence 
By his word, these things were created. By his word, we have the scriptures. Do you remember 2 Timothy 3? For all scripture is God breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, training, and righteousness. God speaks, and these things come to be. Peter says they've forgotten that. They forgot that by the by the word of God, the waters were separated from dry land, from dry land. He mentions this, this idea of the world being destroyed. They forget by the word of God that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. The created order was subject to a deluge sent by God because he would no longer strive with human evil. Because everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And by God's word, the worlds were made. And by his word, the world was covered with water. And by his word, the heavens and earth are being preserved. These are the things that Peter's teaching that these people forget. That everything is under God's sovereign control. The universe did not just start by his word, but it is preserved by his word, moment by moment, by the power of the word of God. And by, the same, by that same word, it is being preserved until the day of judgment. He always points to what's coming. Folks, he's coming. Jesus is coming. The end is coming. And so scoffers laugh, and perhaps they laugh because of all the predictions. It was just October of 2011 that everybody got nervous. The end of time was coming. It was just this past December. It's, it's over, folks. Get ready. You know? Food and guns won't do you any good. The, game, the game's over. No, wait. It was the mind calendar, wasn't it? Yeah. Wait, no. Was it Nostradamus? Nostradamus. That's what it was. He said... <laughs> that they would be riding on horses and something about nine circles. And so basically what he's saying is once the video on YouTube, Gangnam Style, reaches one billion hits, <laughs> then the world will end. Google it, folks. It's out there. I'm not kidding. These are the types of predictions people make. No wonder people laugh at end-time predictions. It's pretty funny, just to be honest. So the moment you've all been waiting for. When is he coming? They've all made their predictions, and now it's time for me, this moment I've been waiting for all my life, to tell you when Jesus is coming. Are you ready? I think Peter gives us some idea to when Jesus will return in this passage. Some have, willful, have, uh, some have a willful forgetting, but to the saints, Peter says, verse 8 and 9, Do not overlook this one fact. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The fact that all these things have not yet come to pass is not because God is slack, or because his word has become of no effect, or because he's a God of false promises. Rather, God is patient. He is long-suffering with us. He is patient toward you. The kingdom ha had not been fully realized when these words were written because God is unwilling that any should perish. Now, I'm going to get into a couple technical ideas here that I want you to follow along with, with me. Don't, don't let me lose you here, okay? I want to cover these as we close. Verse 9 is one of the most commonly misinterpreted verses in the Bible when it comes to who will be saved in the scriptures. The first thing we have to do with, deal with 
is the word willing. And you'll see it in verse, verse 9 there. He says, wishing that any should perish. That's probably not the best translation. I would, I would use the word willing there. Uh, so he's not willing that any should perish. The word he uses has several nuances throughout the New Testament. And the Bible uses this term uh, with respect to God in several ways. When we talk about God's will, everybody wants to know what God's will is, right? Well, it depends on what type of will you're talking about. What is God's will? Well, there's three frequent ways that this term willing or God's will is referred to. The first one is his sovereign or decretive will. His sovereign or decretive will. This is whatever God wills must necessarily come to pass. For instance, creation. God wills that the world be created. So it is created. Nothing could ever stop that. It will. It, whatever he says goes. That's his decretive will. He declared it. He decreed it. And it happened. That's his decretive will. There's also his perceptive will. This is what God commands his people to do. This is his law, for example. When he says, you shall have no other gods before me. It's not a sovereign will that must come to pass. Because every human by nature breaks this will. We can violate the perceptive will or word of God, and we do every time we sin. It's God's will for you not to commit adultery. It's God's will for you not to have other gods before you. But you're going to break that will. That's not something that's decreed that will happen. We're not robots, okay? And so we see this here, that we'll break this perceptive will. And then there's this will of disposition of God. This has to do with this basic disposition of God towards fallen humanity. The Bible tells us, for example, that God does not delight in the death of the wicked or in the punishment of evildoers. He still decrees their punishment, but his doing so is almost like a just judge sentencing his son to prison. He would do so, but not with glee or delight. So we have his decretive will, his sovereign will, his perceptive will, and his will of disposition. You follow me? Why do I even bring that up? This is important. What is our text talking about when it says God is not willing that any should perish. Which one of these is he talking about in our text? Well, at face value, I believe that it is God's sovereign will here. God is not willing that any should perish. So that means that he is willing for all to come to eternal life. Are you following me? He's declaring it, that all should come to eternal life. Now this is where a lot of people get universalism from. The idea that everyone will be saved or everyone will go to heaven. No matter what you believe, where you are on the earth, everything's going to be all right. This could not be further from the truth. Some people believe that, but they do not, and they use this verse as their proof text for it. But what they miss is the words any and all mentioned right after that. Now we know that everyone will not be saved, so this cannot be universalism. How do we know that? Peter just made this huge distinction between the believer and the unbeliever. False teachers, scoffers, who will be destroyed. The scriptures talk about a place called hell, where those who do not trust in Christ will spend eternity separated from him. So we know this cannot mean that everyone's going to heaven. So what does it mean? The real question here, then, is who are the any mentioned in verse 9? Do you see it in verse 9? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. So if we're going to understand this text in its context, then we have to consider, 
And here's a good grammar term. The antecedent of the word any. What is the pronoun that any is referring back to? There is no mystery to this. It is abundantly clear in this text itself. God is patient towards who? You. He is long-suffering. Some of your translations say with us. And so the any and the all mentioned later in the verse refer back to you and us. Is that clear? I mean, that's pretty clear. Now we have to determine who this you or us is. This is where it gets exciting. That, again, is not difficult. Peter is clearly distinguishing who? The believer from the unbeliever, the scoffer and the false prophet from those who will trust Christ. So look at who the letter is addressed to. Who is this you? Peter says he's patient with you. Who is this you? Peter is writing to believers. He's writing to those who have faith in Christ Jesus. In 1 Peter, he calls them the elect that are scattered. In 2 Peter, in the very first verse, he says, Those who have obtained a faith equal standing of ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior through Jesus Christ. This letter is written to believers. So God is, God is patient with you. His long-suffering with us, with believers. Not willing that any, not willing that any believers would perish, but that all would come to eternal life. Now these letters were circulated throughout the churches, the scattered elect that we just talked about. So what does this tell us about Jesus' return? When is Jesus coming? Well, Paul mentions in uh, Romans 11 when the full number of Gentiles come into the kingdom. Jesus says that the gospel will be preached where? Every nation. And then the end will come. God is gathering his elect from the four corners of the earth. And when he is done, when the last believer enters into the kingdom, he'll be here. He'll return. This is not a text about universalism. This is a text about God and the perseverance of his saints. And those who are believers will not perish. Don't miss the importance of this passage. Christ is going to return once the gospel has been preached everywhere it was supposed to be preached at. There it is. My big moment. When's he coming? When he declared that he's coming. When the last person comes into the kingdom who he's called to repentance. How does this apply? What does this even matter to me and you? Well, first of all, and we'll get into this more next week. We should live like he's coming back right now. And not be afraid or lose heart when people scoff and make fun of what we believe. But second of all, the hope that this gives us in evangelism is incredible. Some people worry about who they witness to. Did I mess up? Did I do this or whatever? Man, God is saving people. And the fact that... That he has not come back means there's more people to be saved. And so you are promised success in evangelism. Go share the gospel. People will be saved. Amen? Amen. This should encourage you to be more evangelistic in your life. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, In this gospel the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. We as believers in Christ, get to be a part of ushering in 
the kingdom of God. As we go forth and we share the gospel and people get born again. I don't want to sound hokey here, but what if the next person you share with is the last person called into the kingdom of God and his return? Not like you're going to get an extra reward or anything like that. I'm just saying that would be pretty stinking cool, right? You talk about getting evangelistic zeal when you realize you are a part of God's design to bring in his kingdom. You a person whom he has redeemed, have been giving, given the message of reconciliation. God, bringing people to himself, using human instrumentality, you and me, to share this gospel. What a blessing. If that doesn't excite you, you need to press the excitement button in your life and get with it. When you proclaim the Lord's death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his soon coming again, let him mock. Let them make fun of you. And you remember, the Lord is not slow or slack to fulfill his promise. He's coming. And he's coming soon. May we, like John, say amen, Lord Jesus.